You can remain standing for the reading of God's word. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. It's on page 1006 of your pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. and Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word never goes out and returns to you empty. It always accomplishes your purposes, and we pray that it would do that this morning in our hearts, through your spirit, and to your glory. Amen. Well, on November 28th of last year, 2016, there was fire on the mountain in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I've mentioned that uh, I lived in the Gatlinburg area for a couple years in between college and seminary. And in fact, my favorite Gatlinburg restaurant burned down, the Mountain Lodge, uh, Great Eggs Benedict. And uh, more seriously, some of uh, the homes of some of my youth group kids burned down. Uh, In fact, the devastating statistics from that fire which you may have seen on the national news, was, uh, were this. 14 people died, 2,000 homes and businesses burned down, 14,000 people were evacuated, to say nothing of huge swaths of the national park, 
that burned down. It was a fire the likes of which had never been seen in the Smoky Mountains. But in the midst of this blazing underworld, one man, 72-year-old Benny Hammonds, legendary local football coach at Gatlinburg-Pittman High School, stood steadfast in front of his cedar-planked house and defended it with a hose pipe, a garden hose, a cedar-planked house in the midst of a forest fire. He said, if I could just keep this house wet, I can save it. And he told the local paper in an, in an understatement, I think, he said, maybe it wasn't the smartest move that I've ever made in my life. The rental cabins were burning beside me like the gates of hell, you would imagine. My plan, so he did have a plan, was to keep, himself, keep myself wet with the hose, then jump in the stream that runs beside my house if I needed to. I was glad that the police came and got me. I couldn't have gotten out of there on my own. There is nothing quite like a fire. And the bigger it is, the hotter, the more widespread it is, the more devastating it becomes. And that is why Hebrews 12.29, which is a few chapters after our own passage, is so sobering. It says, our God is a consuming fire. They don't put that one on bumper stickers. That's not on a mug that you can get at Lifeway. Our God is a blaze a conflagration, an inferno, and that is what so much of the Old Testament is about. If God is holy, 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 how can sinful people get near him without being consumed? How can the furnace of this holy God live right there in camp without destroying everyone around him? The answer in the Old Testament is that God gave a garden hose. This is uh, the, the first part of Hebrews 9, which we did not read, is about this first covenant. This little garden hose, a tent, a tabernacle with a holy place and a most holy place. And it had to be tended by the priests every day, offering sacrifices according to this directory of regulations that God had given. I don't know about you, but I hate following directions. I would have made a bad priest. Last year I put together a play kitchen for my three-year-old. It was like 70-something pieces, 50-something steps. I thought I could build a real kitchen from scratch and it would be easier and less time-consuming than this. And the Israelites did something exponentially more difficult every day in order just to not die, in order to not be consumed. And some of them were when they made mistakes. Sacrifices upon sacrifices culminating in the once per year visit of the high priest into the holy of holies, into the, the inner sanctuary of God's presence. The system was elaborate, it was daunting, and it was flawed. Even on the best day, it was a garden hose to stave off this consuming fire of the one true God. Benny Hammond uh, had to keep his house wet 
right? The Israelites had to keep their hose running. They had to keep the sacrifices moving. The system could not stop. And that is why Hebrews 9, 9, just before our passage, our passage says the old covenant could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It couldn't get at the heart. It was a, an external, a sort of body, not soul solution. Something else was needed. Something that wasn't a temporary fix, but a, a once and for all quenching of the wrath of God towards sin. And so Christ appeared. As our passage begins, three themes that we're going to look at. The, the greater high priest, the new covenant, and the better sacrifice. The greater high priest, the new covenant, and the better sacrifice. So priest, covenant, sacrifice, you'll notice that these things are the infrastructure of the Old Testament and they continue into the New Testament so that there is continuity, but they look different because they're fulfilled in Christ. So there's discontinuity, we like to say. And that's what Hebrews is about. It's about looking at the shadow of God's grace in the Old Testament and then seeing it uh, replaced or better fulfilled in the tangible reality of Jesus Christ. The result being uh, shock and awe at how much better Jesus is than the old system. Verse 11, Christ appeared as a high priest. This phrase alone, if the book of Hebrews didn't say anything but this phrase, it would have been world-shaking, would have been mind-bending for the original audience of this book. Hebrews, if you didn't know, has sort of a tough time. Uh, it's the most contested book in the whole canon. We don't know who wrote it, although we know that they were in the apostolic circle, though not an apostle. And it really, it reads a little bit different than, than a straightforward epistle. It reads more like a sermon. It's written to people who grew up Jewish, who converted to Christianity and then were, felt themselves being drawn back to the old way of doing things, to Judaism. And that's why the author is so interested in this better argument. He's saying, how can you go back to the old way when Jesus is so much better? So why would this phrase, Christ appeared as high priest, be so important? This is not the first time in Hebrews that it comes out, but... It's because there are three roles or offices of Christ that theologians talk about. Prophet, priest, and king. Those are three people who existed in the Old Testament who no longer exist in the same way now. And of those three, the prophet and, and king roles of Jesus were explicitly clear in the Gospels. For instance, if you think about the crowds when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the last time called him a prophet, the sign above Jesus' head when he was crucified read King of the Jews. But the priest part, the, the third office here was not so clear, although it was definitely implied. Um, Simon Kistemacher, who's a commentator, has argued that it would have been especially dangerous, in fact, for Jesus and his disciples to play up this sort of priest angle. But now the author of Hebrews, whoever it is, is ready to unleash this. He's going to make this his axe to grind. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, 
that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What is he saying? He's saying that everything that the old high priest did, sort of lowercase high priest of the Old Testament, everything that he did, Jesus, the great high priest, came and did better. The good things that have come, in other words, the benefits that have come through Christ, because he went into a greater and more perfect tent, not one made with poles and, and thread and fabric, he went into the holy places, into the sanctuary of the presence of God and sat down at his right hand. In other words, Jesus has walked into the consuming fire and is now relaxing. And I say that tongue in cheek, he's active, but he has sat down, his work is done. How can a person, fully human, one of us, be in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. It's because of the blood. The blood has secured an eternal redemption. It's the blood of a perfect person. The only blood that didn't actually deserve to be shed, but it was shed and it flowed because Christ went willingly to the cross to give himself up for his people. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? There's almost to my ears a, a sense of sarcasm. We will call it holy sarcasm. Uh, as the writer describes the blood of goats and calves and bulls and the sprinkling in verse 13 of the ashes of a, heifer, <clears throat> of a heifer on a defiled and sinful person. This is a, a lesser to greater argument. He's saying they're just animals, which is remarkable, right? Because think about how important the blood of these animals was in the Old Testament. Think about the solemnity and the specificity of God's instructions and the frequency with which all of these things were happening. Every single day of the Old Covenant, the blood flowing out of the still warm bodies of these animals, and pardon me, but this is the reality of sin, right? That sin and blood are joined, and in the lifeblood of these living and breathing things being slung around and sprinkled and great streams of it flowing down from the altar and through the gutters. Why? Because sin is death. But it was just animals, right? It was like a, a child pretending to make food at a 75-piece play kitchen. It took his dad six hours to create. It was a, a garden hose to fight a forest fire, a, a sort of dribble to keep the wrath of God at bay until the flood, until the fountain of the blood of Christ could come and take care of not just the body, not just the outside, but the soul and the conscience and the root of our sin and rebellion towards God. So we needed a new covenant. And that's our 
our, our second point here, a, a new system, a new mediator, verse 15. That's what a priest is, right? It's somebody who stands in the gap between us and God, who endures the danger so that we can be safe. Uh, one of my best friends just became a firefighter in Memphis, and he has been trained to stand between normal people in the fire, to mediate between them in his specialized gear with his specialized skills, which sounds a lot like a priest. But they had a problem, right? Because priests were just men. They were just people. And they aged and died and they made mistakes. And this was not really a profession you wanted to be doing those things in, right? Because the results could be disastrous. So we have an eternal God. We needed an eternal solution. We needed a constant priest, a priest for all time. And so Christ appeared as high priest. In other words, the death of Christ met that need, inaugurated a new covenant, not to destroy the old covenant, but to fulfill it, to meet its demands once and for all. And the demands were not merely the blood of animals, that's part of it. And again, the, the writer of Hebrews points out the importance, the necessity of blood as ratification of covenants, both old and new. Verse 16, covenant and will are, are actually the same word. That's why a theologian named o, o. Palmer Robertson famously defined covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A covenant is, in other words, a life or death situation. Great novelist Cormac McCarthy, one of my favorites, who is not a Christian, said in an interview once that he could not take seriously writers who did not deal with life and death. He said, there is no such thing as life without bloodshed. If you read any McCarthy, his books are full of bloodshed. He's saying, this is the essence of being human. We have to face this violence and death and not avoid it, not pretend like it doesn't exist. And that is a profoundly biblical thought. I think the writer of Hebrews would agree because he addresses death in, in all these different angles vividly, angles of body and soul and temporal and eternal. Back in verse 12, he said, by means of blood, Jesus secured an eternal redemption. And now in verse 15, he speaks of the promised eternal inheritance. The temporal bodily sacrifice looked like, verse 19, Moses taking calf and goat blood, mixing it with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkling it on the people to ward off the wrath of God. Because verse 22, under the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you can see my notes as I prepared the sermon on this passage, uh, verses 18 to 22, Specifically, it just says, blood, blood, blood. It is overwhelming. I am tired of saying it. You are probably tired of hearing about it. And if we're tired of blood, think about how much more tired the Israelites would have been. Why does God care so much? Why does he care about blood so much? Because when we talk about blood in the context of the Bible, we are talking about 
as even the secular Cormac McCarthy knows, we're talking about the essence of humanity, but maybe even more specifically, we're talking about the essence of humanity in creation and fall and redemption. We receive life through blood. We are birthed into it. The fall creates death and causes blood to be shed, and then we are saved by this specialized, mediatorial, high priestly blood of Jesus. He is both the priest who stands in the gap and the lamb, the sacrifice itself, who sheds it. That's how serious sin is. Each one is, is a bloody insurrection against the king. Our impatience, our sinful fears, our lies to others and to ourselves and to God, the subtle ones and the explicit ones, our disdain for people who are not like us, our avoidance of repentance, our impure thoughts, and a thousand more stacked on top of each other, overflowing out of us. And for all of this, it was either a perfect sacrifice or damnation. Why does God care so much about blood? Because when sacrificial blood flows in Scripture, bulls and goats in the Old Testament, but even better, Christ's blood in the New Testament, that is justice flowing. That's the king himself smashing the insurrections as is just and good and right of him. There is no such thing as a drop in the bucket sin. They all count each one of them, and they're all tallied. And there has to be a debt, there is a debt that has to be paid there. And if you're here this morning, and you've never turned from your sin, and you've never trusted Jesus, then you are carrying that debt with you. You're responsible for it. And if you have, and you're in Christ, and your sins aren't lost either, they've just been paid by another. They've been unloaded onto Jesus, onto this great high priest, onto a better sacrifice. And that's our, our third part here. I don't want to belabor the point as sin is itself a sort of violence, grace, mercy, and redemption comes through, through violence, but a, a just kind of violence. And that violence was laid on Jesus, on the Son of God. There's no other way. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would, have, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once. Now after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What does all this mean? Well, some of it we have already covered, but verse 23 is, is very interesting. It calls the Old Testament system a copy 
of heavenly things. But then it refers to the heavenly things themselves. This is Old Testament, New Testament relations. Hebrews is a good book for that. So often we talk about the Old Testament uh, pointing forward to or foreshadowing the New Testament, and that is certainly true. The Old Testament is the shadow, the New Testament the reality, Old Testament the type, New Testament, <clears throat> New Testament what we call the antitype, and the Old Testament the pattern, the new, the fulfillment. But we hear less often, talk about less often, what the writer of Hebrews highlights here is that the Old Testament itself is patterned after the heavenly things. Think of a triangle. So instead of just the, uh, the bottom of the triangle, the Old Testament, New Testament sort of horizontal relationship, there's a vertical element to here, an eternal element. Because Old Testament things are patterned after the reality of heavenly things. Uh, Mike Kruger, New Testament scholar, uses this illustration. He says that the heavenly things are like the reality. The Old Testament things are like a black and white sketch. The New Testament is like a color photo. Why does that matter? Think of it this way. The Old Testament priests were both based on Jesus and pointing forward to Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the point. At every step of the way, at every moment in time, every dimension of, of heavenly and earthly reality, Jesus is not simply patterned after these Old Testament prophets and priests and kings. They are patterned after him and find their fulfillment in him. If that is obscure to you, then that's okay. We don't have a whiteboard with diagrams here, but the whole point is that the primacy of Jesus Christ, he is the star of this passage. He's the star of the whole Bible. And if we can put it this way, he's the star of heaven as, as he is worshiped continually there. So where does that leave us? Well, I don't want to tell you how to feel um, in light of this passage because it, it could and probably should do different things. My three-year-old watches a show called Daniel Tiger if you're a parent, you know what that is. It's, it's like a cartoon, sort of Mr. Rogers. And one of their little songs says, it says, sometimes you feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. And that's good. That's, that's good counseling, right? Um, we should at times feel overwhelmed by sin and its portrayal in the Bible and the sheer wickedness of it and the, the blood that has to flow because of it. And by the fact that even after death, or after the death of Christ, it is still present, although its power is broken. Sometimes we should be overwhelmed at our own sin, at its depth and its nuances and its ugliness. But at other times, at sweet times, maybe even at the same time as these other things, we should be overwhelmed that Jesus Christ, verse 26, has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and that he has done it. If you are in Christ, there is no more blood to be shed. There is no more debt to be paid. It's already been paid once and for all so that we don't have to rely on this old system, on fallible priests offering sacrifices again and again and again and again. 
If you're in Christ, your sin is put away. And the battle against it is raging, right? That's called sanctification. But the war has been decided so that sin can pester you, but it can't haunt you. By that I mean it can trouble you, but it, but it can't have you ultimately. Because Jesus' blood is too powerful for that. What's more, verse 28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The star of the show, Jesus himself is coming back. And by faith, he knows you. He's, he's coming back with you on his mind to take you home if you're in Christ. And if he tarries, it's appointed for you, verse 27, to die once, but to live a million times over with him in glory. And that's why we wait. It says eagerly, eagerly. A month ago, I took um, 10 Hendrick students to RUF Summer Conference in Panama City Beach. That was a month ago, but for a month before that, my three-year-old would wake up every day and he would say, is it time to go to the beach? Are we going to the beach today? Sometimes he still says that. Are we going to the beach? That's how we should wait. Not that we should look forward to death in, in that same way, but that we should wait with confidence and hope and expectation. If you don't feel that way, then you should meditate on these things. It's like looking in a brochure to get yourself ready for the beach. Closing your eyes and imagining that sort of clean, salt sea breeze. That's why we can go back to passages like this again and again and again. Coach Benny Hammond's house made it. I don't know whether it was the, the hose pipe or what that saved it. But as the fire raged, what people were really praying for was rain. They were praying for a deluge to snuff out the whole thing. Think about that. They weren't calling the water department. They were praying for rain from God. That was the only real solution. And spiritually speaking, we already have that. We already have the real solution, this deluge of grace that came with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you that it covers us and that it saves us and that as much as we would like to avoid uh, blood and the messiness of those things, that you walked right into it in Jesus Christ and gave yourself for us. We thank you that your grace continues, that it was a sacrifice once and for all, and that we will reap its benefits one day in heaven with you, but that even now you are changing us and that we are saved by grace and through faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.